Here's the thing about Babylon 5. Oh, right? what's the thing about Babylon 5? Please tell us. <laughs> this, this is a show... This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 101, Day of the Dead. We interrupt your regularly JMS-authored Babylon 5 to bring you an episode written by someone else. What? And not just, <laughs> not just <laughs> any someone else, but science fantasy darling... Neil Gaiman. What? And, yeah. And for such a momentous occasion as the uh, Brakiri Day of the Dead, we figured we should bring in a guest. This one is, I am happy to say, very much alive. It is our control group and my spouse, Stephen Chapansky. Welcome, Stephen. What? I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Stephen. You're in a safe place. Among devoted, diehard fans of Neil Gaiman who worship the very ground he walks on, you'll be fine. <laughs> Good. Uh, before we get to your questions, though, uh, we would we are very much interested as we it's it's about halfway through the season, and we always like to bring you on once in, in the middle of the season and sort of sort of uh, see how our control group is feeling. How how are you feeling about season five so far with the the telepaths and the the new captain and? the Noah Vanova, all that stuff. Give us give us the lowdown. Yeah, we'll, we'll all come together in a better place, right, Stephen? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that was... Uh, now, uh, people who are listening at home listen every two weeks when this podcast comes out, but, but we banked a bunch of watching episodes before Gallifrey 1, so that seems like an eternity ago, mm -hmm. and in a way, I'm kind of glad... It, the 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 first part. What are we halfway through season five? I don't even know what what number uh -huh. we're at. I don't even check up. Almost guides, literally half. But yep, almost literally halfway through. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of season four of Blake Seven, just because <laughs> um the the credits rolled on on the end of season three. So so the story goes, the last episode of season three of Blake Seven, which was supposed to be the last episode ever. But the BBC controller uh, saw it, and literally during the uh, like half, uh, like twenty minutes left in the episode, phoned the the BBC to say, "Wow, this is an amazing thing! Let's make another series." <laughs> and so they, you know, there was a hastily recorded announcement that went out live during the closing credits of of that episode. This says, "Blake Seven will return in 1981," which no one knew about. And so the first half of that that next season was like them basically scrambling to make a show they thought was now over with. And a lot of people <laughs> sort of like thought it was a, a bit scattershot. And I get, I just by some of the things that have been happening in the first half of this series, I feel like it's kind of the same thing in that Sheridan is, is very uninvolved in, in most of the proceedings now, just, you know, despite being the, the center of attention for the three seasons before this. And there's been stuff about telepaths with Lita in there basically is our sort of communication, um, you know, uh, what do we call it? Agent? I don't know. The person who we sort of identify with. Our viewpoint character. War. Yeah. Um, and so, and but there's been some episodes like that barely like that one that had the uh, um, the fighting Minbari come in and settle their scores and stuff like that was almost like a, a spinoff episode of this other series that existed in the Babylon Five universe because there were so few regulars in it and so but you you informed me Chip that that 
these things were shot in the regular schedule and everything and not like sort of double banked with the movies or anything like that. So I just find it very interesting that um, the first half of the season has has been kind of trying to find its feet a little bit. I thought if, if the telepath war is over... Don't laugh at me in spoiler space if it isn't. Oh, we're going to laugh but, at you in spoiler space either way. I know. Um, I I thought that it was much more contained than I thought it would be because I was expecting a sort of a bigger thing, but it really it was just sort of a standoff in the depths of down below in Babylon 5, and then it ended with singing and gunfire, so... <laughs> It's um, <laughs> all great. It, it was a bit too. of a disappointing. Yeah, it was a bit of a disappointing end to that. But um, but it's 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 been interesting still, nonetheless, to see how how a TV show sort of picks itself up out of the ashes of what it thought perhaps was going to be the end of it, and and how it's going to carry on for for another year. Yeah, I mean, we've been fairly we've been fairly open, and more so as uh, we get we got closer to the end of season four, we've been. Uh, sharing a little bit more of the behind-the-scenes stuff that other fans at the time would have known. So I, it's it's been helpful to you, I think, knowing that that there was all this uncertainty going on and that uh, plot points were getting shoved this way and that way to try to give you a, a satisfying ending to season four if that was going to be it. Doesn't it, doesn't it feel a lot more like season one of Babylon 5? It does. It, it it also kind of feels like, you know, we've had a big emotional goodbye at the end of um, season four. And it's kind of like saying, oh, we had a good emotional bye on a goodbye on floor 16 of the Marriott. And then you get up the next morning and then, oh, I guess we're sharing this elevator ride down to the lobby. Uh, well, <laughs> let's um, let's try to not make this awkward and try to have another good goodbye at the end of this while we go off to the hotel shuttle. That's kind of what it feels like a little bit. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, okay. So now that we've got your thoughts on that, let's uh, let's jump in. I will do our our little recap before we before we dive into this this interesting, fascinating episode. I'm so excited to hear what you think about it, Stephen. So here is what you need to know going into this episode. Babylon Five is a space station. Its captain is Elizabeth Lockley. We don't know a lot about her. The president of the Earth Alliance, John Sheridan, is happily married to Minbari Ambassador Delenn. Delenn's former attaché, Lanier, is also in love with her, so much so that he left B-5 to go train as a member of the Rangers. Michael Garibaldi, head of intelligence for the Alliance, once almost slept with a Gropo named Dodger, who then was killed in action. Centauri Ambassador Molari was in love with a dancer named Adira, whom he was going to marry, before she was murdered by a very bad man named Mr. Morden. And now, for something completely different. Day of the Dead. The Brakiri Day of the Dead happens once every 200 years, and in order to celebrate properly, they must be on the Brakiri homeworld. To promote religious freedom, Captain Lockley sells a chunk of Babylon 5 to the Brakiri for exactly one night. She thinks it's a religious metaphor. It's not a metaphor. When the Brakiri sun sets, that chunk of the station somehow moves to the Brakiri homeworld, and everyone in that section of the station is visited by someone who is dead. Oh, and Penn and Teller visit the station as a comedy duo named Rebo and Zudi. And that's really it. So, you guys, <laughs> this this being the one episode that's not written by JMS in the final three seasons of the show, do you think it feels like Babylon 5 or is it too metaphysical? Um, I'm, I'm curious to, to see what you think. 
it feels like Babylon 5 to me, uh, mainly because, yes, there's this metaphysical, not really explained phenomenon that uh, gets all these people where they are, but because it is such a wonderful character piece, and we have had here and there throughout the show um, opportunities for, you know, JMS and other writers to uh, play with the characters, uh, put these two together and let them interact and see what happens, things like that. For me, it fits, and I adore this episode. I had forgotten just how much I adore this episode. Uh, I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, um, of course, you know, big Babylon 5 fan, and getting to see him play with these characters in a different way, it feels really refreshing to me and feels like a good breather between what we've been dealing with with the telepath war and now that we're changing gears to we presume some other story arc to finish out the season i think it fits very well chip i enjoyed this episode very much but it's a different experience looking at it now compared to 20 years ago 20 years ago neil gaiman was the hot cult thing in fantasy Mm -hmm. and comics uh sandman was a big thing you know they dropped in the gayum race as Mm -hmm. a very definite homage to sandman and to neil gaiman himself you know they named the race after him and they designed the creatures after the uh, after the sandman character in the comics so he was not the guy who wrote american gods yet he was not in the mass public consciousness. Uh, So the hubbub for him writing this episode wasn't in any way comparable to the hubbub and hype for his episodes, especially his first episode of Doctor Who many years later. So if I put myself back in 1998 shoes... Uh, and and this is and this was his by the way his American television debut. He had written Neverwhere, which aired on the BBC a couple of years before. But this was like a geek coming out party. Um, <laughs> um, so at the time, I remember a lot of enthusiasm for the episode. Uh, I remember some disquiet over the metaphysical aspects of it. But I, if I recall correctly, fandom at the time was like, well, that's just Neil Gaiman being Neil Gaiman. And we'll accept that because it's Neil Gaiman. <laughs> um, looking at it today, I'm not quite as in love with it as it was before because it, I think it does break things a little bit. Not so much for the the time and space displacement of uh, a section no, of, of the station. That's fine. The... the, the um, <laughs> Time rift stuff with Epsilon 3. You know, there is precedent for really weird stuff. The mysterious return of dead people makes for great drama, but not only is it not explained, but they actually, instead of going full-on magic realist, they actually make a couple of hand waves at the end of this episode. This was an insert that JMS wrote at the end of the script as a possible inadequate explanations for what actually happened here and that doesn't work for me quite as well it does feel like it's breaking continuity for me a little bit uh so i really 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 like this episode but i am not in love with it as past me was steven coming to it you know with fresh eyes how did how did you think it felt did it feel like just another episode of babylon 5 or were you taken aback by the mysticism Let me preface this by telling you 
that this is now the last thing that I knew about Babylon 5 before we started watching Babylon ah. 5. The, the, I think there were four things that I knew about Babylon 5 going into this that you all were very um, careful to avoid spoiling me against. One was the fact that it was... Uh, I knew that Bruce Boxleitner was the the lead in the show. And so when he wasn't the lead in season one, I thought, what's going on here? Uh, two, I knew that Delenn had hair, basically. <laughs> and so you're very, you were very, very careful to avoid uh, spoiling me on something I already knew. Uh, three, for some reason, Tracy Scoggins is a name that is front and center in my brain and i know she was coming along at some point as well and number four was that neil gaiman wrote the only non-jms episode for like the last three or four years of the show so this gaiman thing has been waiting out there and forever and ever and i remember i remember thinking to myself and i never asked erica this while I could see her reaction so that she didn't have to play poker face, but I'm thinking you're going to ask me on for the game and episode, aren't you? <laughs> uh, and then the second that Penn and Teller showed up, I realized that's it. This is the <laughs> game and episode. I knew it before I even saw his opening credit. I knew this is the game and episode. Okay. I, okay. I, help I heard, help I, me with yeah. this, Stephen. Help me with this. Okay. What's the connection here between Penn and Teller and Gaiman for you? What 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 was the signal there for you? I don't know. I think are they friends? Maybe they are friends. They Penn and Teller seem like people who would be friends with Neil Gaiman. Let's put it that way. True. And there's a certain magic element. I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be magic and whimsy, which I don't know as much about Neil Gaiman as you do. I literally only know his stuff from from television. Um, be it American Gods or Doctor Who or or Neverwhere, and so I was expecting sort of some, and then then the the uh, Burkiri guy with the skulls and Day of the Dead that that like cemented it further for me as well. So I just sort of sense okay, there, I sense tropes happening here, <laughs> gaming <laughs> tropes. Um, yes, and then so I was ex- and I had heard like either it's like a great episode or some people have said oh this that's the worst episode ever of Babylon Five. So I was going in not knowing what to expect. And I actually found it, I was surprised at how much it relied on it on the, its own past, the past of the show, because I was expecting a complete total standalone. Because mm-hmm. this one, we're, we're going by the Lurker's Guide. This thing aired, we're watching it like five weeks after it originally aired. Like I, So I knew that it's some, somehow this would not really affect anything that was going on around it at, at the time. So that's why I thought this is going to be the most throwaway episode ever, but it really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what yeah. did you th- do, answer my question? Yeah. What did you think about the magic? <laughs> the magic? Mm-hmm. You mean like the, uh, the 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 transporting the part of Babylon Five across the no, galaxy, that, that sort of thing? The no, dead like people dead, coming back. The dead and people coming back. Dead people coming back and knowing the future. Here's the thing about Babylon Five. Oh, right? what's the thing about Babylon Five? Please tell us. <laughs> this, this is a show that has a character who we'll get to later. Um, uh, who basically spouts off stuff that I'm not supposed to know about anyway because it'll never come to pass for another couple years. Uh, there's been weird uh, sort of um, godlike creatures who um, help Sheridan out of tram explosions and everyone sees a different angel. So honestly, I've been prepared for this. I literally had no problem <laughs> whatsoever you. with Thank any you. of that <laughs> at all. None. Well- that is that is fair. I have to, I do have to say that that I kind of had the 
almost an opposite reaction that you had, Chip. I I think I remember not liking this episode, maybe not the first time, but perhaps on rewatches, because I wasn't looking forward to watching it because of the, you know, like you you got your mysticism in my sci-fi. But as Stephen pointed out, that's there's there's more of that in Babylon Five than I sometimes like to admit. And watching it, it was a really well-written, well-acted, well-put-together episode. So I quite enjoyed it. But I think I may have said in spoiler space on our last episode, I feel like it's an amazing episode of a very different show. So I I still have trouble with with the with the dead people coming back and not not only is it not explained and not only do we have those few lines at the end with Lockley spouting off um, actually and the things that she spouts off are purely related to you know what people perceived of it there's like they don't even give a possible explanation for like the actual movement of the station and stuff right um but uh they, they the literally that... did have to reroute communications mm-hmm. over light mm-hmm. years so it really did happen there was no yep. gas exactly exactly right. um mm-hmm. but but throughout the episode you got lines and quotes that were very much just like I mean, almost waving it in in your face, and you had you know episodes talking about uh, not episodes uh, characters talking about you know I don't believe in ghosts or reincarnation or any of that stuff. Um, so you know you get this character that's sort of speaking for for many many of the viewers, um, and uh, later you get somebody saying, oh you know just think of me as a brief electromagnetic anomaly who told you some truth for your own good. So you've got these these dead characters themselves sort of brushing it off in a way that felt really cheeky to me and kind of annoying. I don't know if I am the only one that found that annoying. I didn't find it annoying, but it did feel discordant. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, uh, your your comment before and and just now about this feeling like an episode of a different series, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But a really good episode. So, like, I recognize that there's a lot of good to it. And and Stephen is right. It's it's impressive how much of this character piece relies on knowing the characters as well as, you know, super well. And I didn't necessarily know whether or not to expect that from Neil Gaiman. But obviously, either he'd been watching the show or he did his homework because mm-hmm. that was some spot on writing. A little bit of both. Uh, Shannon and I own the script book that was published by one of Gaiman's uh, friends, a publisher called Dreamhaven Press at the time. And it's pretty much the original script as written by JMS. So uh, there are some... Gaiman. Or Neil Gaiman. Gaiman, excuse me. So there are some interesting differences, which uh, Shannon and I can dig up in a minute. But in in the foreword, JMS says that Gaiman always told him that he was a fan of the show and chooses to believe that rather than mm-hmm. he got tired of uh, that that Gaiman got tired of JMS camping out on his front lawn every six months begging him to write <laughs> an episode. Gaiman also credits a friend who was a hardcore B5 fan who supported him with when he whenever he asked a when he was writing wow. the script he'd run it by him and say uh, does this feel Babylon 5ish does this feel correct? The uh, script as written, originally written and as produced in that uh, script book, is very, very close to the shooting script. Hmm. Uh, There is Mm -hmm. just, there are a couple of major differences. JMS uh, wrote and rewrote and improved a a few lines and interactions and inserted the enigmatic comment from Kosh, of which I knew Stephen would react. 
Um, <laughs> but also Rebo and Zudi both had lines because at the time that this script was written, Gaiman had no idea who was going to be cast. So ah. the, the the Penn and Teller casting came entirely from JMS's shop, and, I, uh, and Penn and Teller sort of circulated in those same geek spaces at the time as well. So it, it sort of lined up very nicely. But Teller will not speak on camera, no matter whether he is being Teller on camera or playing a different role on camera. So they had to rewrite and give a goofy robot voice to Harlan Ellison. Uh, that was some of the changes that they made there. Yeah, let's talk about Rebo and Zudi. Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you What do you think? For me, it wound up being thumbs up. Um, I remember watching it, you know, the first time around and not being 100% sure about this. You know, they I knew who they were and was like, okay, this is a bit of stunt casting. And so, like, you know, my received fan wisdom memory um, had sort of made their role bigger than it is. Mm-hmm. And in rewatching it, you know, it... It flowed better for me. It fit better. Yes, they have a couple of moments where they're doing their goofy shtick. And then we have the time when they are, you know, in private and having dinner with Sheridan and Delenn and they're being performers rather than performing and uh, wound up saying some, you know, nifty things that I don't remember from my skim of game and script, whether the discussion about uh, whether it's more worthwhile to be a comedian or a political leader, it, that sounded very JMS to me, but that could be Gaiman. Uh, overall, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed their part more than I remember enjoying it in the past. It is Gaiman, and it is scripted that way that okay. in, in the original script, both characters Rebo gets all of the lines um, in the original script. Uh, they were shared, but in the in that script, it's pretty much as played that they drop the act. They dropped the comedy persona and become what comedy people are like when they're off stage. I thought Penn, in particular, did a great job of he and Teller are not doing Penn and Teller shtick so much as they're mm-hmm. doing you know modern Abbott and Costello kinds of things. And then they play actors. They play professional comedians uh, at dinner with uh, Dylan and Sheridan. And I think that they're surprisingly good at it, even if there are some limitations due to Teller's idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. Stephen, what did you think? I thought that part was the most undeveloped, actually, of all the things, Mm -hmm. because they just sort of like they're there. You think they're going to be a major part of this thing, but they're just sort of distractions to keep Dylan and Sheridan busy uh and then they sort of have you know what i want to go into politics now because it's more it's better than comedy well time to go and they they never really follow up on are they are they actually going to go into politics are they going to be the new president of the galaxy or something like that no i I thought that delenn and sheridan talked them out of it but that's my impression Did they anyway. talk him out of it? Well, they I, I said that they comedy did. is important, too. I don't know yeah. if they, like, agreed with it. But, I mean, at the yeah. end of it, they were just sort of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, 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 it looked like they were going to be more important than, than they were, and then they weren't. Um, which kind of reminds me of Nightmare in Silver, to spin it back to Doctor Who, where it looks like, hey, there's going to be children in this episode. It looks like they're going to be important. No, no, we've just put them to bed for literally the entire episode. <laughs> and that's kind of what they do with Penn and Teller here. Yeah, I, I sort of felt like... Sometimes the uh, the great zeitgeist thing in a fictional universe is better left off screen. Like this isn't the first time we've actually heard of Rebo and Zudi. They get right. mentioned uh, in an earlier episode. And, you know, I like the idea that there's this this comedy duo that everybody is in love with. Um, so, Except you know, from Lockley. 
Yeah. But so from like, you know, the, the thousand mile view, like, I think that's a great thing. But when it comes to actually like seeing them do their thing, I am totally team Lockley. I was like, really? And then when she when when it, all there is is Rebo and Zooty uh, movies on Babcom or whatever it is, and we we have to hear some of it. I was just like, this sounds like the worst thing. I would turn it off. I wouldn't even just mm. leave it on. Um, so it's it's nice that everybody loves it. But I feel like either comedy changes an awful lot between now and then or it's i don't know just not not quite hitting the buttons the way it should be yeah but i do agree that uh that pen did a great job yeah and i was kind of charmed by the, their notion of um figuring out what's funny in other cultures and other yes. alien races and you know they they have the bit where they toss off a joke and you know at first delenn's just looking at them open mouth and, and sheridan's just like oh my god is she offended is she shocked and then she just <laughs> like falls down cackling laughing i mean mira furlan's face is just a delight right there and then apparently they we've we've heard Malari talk in the past about not liking Rebo and Zudi and apparently Rebo and Zudi have figured out enough Centauri humor and shown it to him that now he's a fan so um mm-hmm. so I like that aspect very much I kind of liked how um I mean, Lockley is us in that moment you know yeah. the, the the person <laughs> the person who think about every Every catchphrase-based humor bit, you know, Bart Simpson, don't have a cow, man, t-shirts everywhere, zooty, <laughs> zoot, zoot. You know, it's the same sort of thing. And it is just not at all funny to Lockley. And she's not the butt of a joke for having that perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's the, I think that that's one of the genius things about this script is that Rebo and Zooty's stuff is clearly just purely catchphrasey and, and zeitgeisty, as you said, and... Just because everybody else is there laughing, I think we as the audience are not expected to laugh with them. We're just mm-hmm. we're just observing catchphrases in action. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's funnier to see like somebody like Lieutenant Corwin trying to do the hat trick and imitate them <laughs> yes. than uh, than their actual uh, routine. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's move on and let's let's talk about the actual Day of the Dead and the uh, the nocturnal encounters that we get from each of these characters. It's a it's an interesting mix, um, you know, just the the idea of who's inside the zone and who isn't. And, you know, we'll talk about Jakar in a minute and how he didn't want to be. But uh, let's let's start with Londo and Adira. How did did you think that the the first emperor was going to appear to him? Were you surprised by the appearance of Adira? I was. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Considering it's an actress who only appeared like once four years, mm-hmm. four and a half years before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it, it makes sense that, you know, L- Londo may be currently thinking about, you know, the weight of the emperor's crown coming closer and closer. Uh, he's about to, you know, take on this thing that he does not want. So, of course, he's thinking in terms of, you know, living up to the original emperors that he thinks are worth something. And instead... You know, he gets uh, to revisit and he gets something of closure. For all we can tell, he had kind of put Adira out of his mind after her death and after the Shadow War. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, that some of these choices happen, that they're meant to reveal to the characters, you know, or give the characters something. And uh, I think this was a really good one. I think it maybe was also supposed to remind the audience, too, that Mm -hmm. that Londo still had this love and it was still somebody that he kept close to his heart perhaps Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i guess 
thinking about it now, it, it feels a little bit more like maybe we might have seen it coming uh, because Londo at the beginning, when the Bercari is trying to give him the um, sugar skulls and things like that, and Londo mentions, oh, it looks like my senior ex-wife. And, you know, well, we remember, <laughs> you know, we remember her from one of the three in uh, an episode <laughs> a few seasons ago. So. That's yeah. true. I have to I have to give props to the director too for the the slow reveal of the portrait yeah. because first you see Londo talking and he's saying when you were emperor so you think oh wow mm-hmm. but then it's a picture. Yeah, I like the the sort of mirror image thing when Adira appeared in like the third episode of season one. Londo was quote a washed up old Republican close quote. And now she's back and he's almost the emperor. He is the yeah. prime minister. So she is encountering him in an entirely different context. And he is powerful, but he has made so many, so many bad choices over the previous four years. It's symmetry. And I like that. Yeah, we also get uh, in this encounter one of the the several moments that really kind of creeped me out about the dead people because you know on the surface you can be like oh they get to see dead you know their 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 past relatives and then people that they loved and that's nice but all of these people know that they're dead and they remember dying and like the moment that uh that you know londo says you make me feel so young again and adira says you make me feel alive she says mm-hmm. it so wistfully that i got a chill up my spine and was just like this this is i think i think if if there hadn't been that sort of undercurrent um of of the just the creepiness of of these people coming back maybe it wouldn't have bothered me so much that it felt so mystical but that that and the fact that they can see the future added this extra layer that sort of had me kind of raising my uh, shoulders up towards my ears a little bit yeah. uh, we also have garibaldi and dodger of all people who saw that coming <laughs> i have to wonder this crossed my mind uh, after we watched the episode and chip mentioned uh, looking in the uh, day of the dead book script how it was such a juggle to get all of these different actors back mm-hmm. for these roles and i don't remember the exact timeline of michael o'hare's illness that we know about now, the reason he had to leave the show in the first place. I, I kind of wonder if when Gaiman started playing with the script, if he had maybe thought about bringing Sinclair back. That seemed like oh. a, a logical possibility. But then if, you know, by that time, if O'Hare was indeed, you know, too ill to work, then they had to find somebody else from Garibaldi's past that had died uh, to use instead. And therefore they decided, you know, Dodger was kind of fun. Let's, you know, let's bring her back. I like that... They bring back somebody who, as Dodger herself puts it in the episode, you know, most men would leap at the opportunity for a mm. for a yeah. for a roll in the hay with uh, somebody who's not even going to be around the next day. But no, Garibaldi has a partner who has been finally mentioned this year. <laughs> right? Hi, Steven. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he pointed accusatorily at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to have that tension there. The two of them basically literally Netflix and chill for the whole night. <laughs> yeah, except for the time that he's busy working because he's he's a right. diligent, diligent fellow. Lots of analog cables there. Lots and lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I liked it. I mean, I just, I, I like the actress. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. liking her back yes. um, in the original in Gropos. And, you know, to have her back and she's so vivacious and so funny and so full of life. The way a couple of these work is it feels like closure, not only for the character, but maybe the chance to have a little bit of a callback and closure for the audience. So very true. Well, uh, one that's uh, closure for a character, but not closure for the audience, because we didn't know who the heck she was, was mm-hmm. uh, Lockley seeing Zoe, which is kind of a, an interesting window into the character of Lockley uh, in a way that we have not seen at all. Mm-hmm. This is something that I, I'd be interested in getting Steven's reaction to, especially. Lockley is an add-on character. She's not mm. Poochie by any means, but uh, she is there <laughs> to replace Claudia Christian. This is character backstory that comes from nowhere, and I, I, I really crave the control group's reaction to it. <laughs> I think that was probably my favorite um, of mm. the the four um, meetings, just because, you know, as you say, Lockley is just basically Ivanova replacement at this point. Um, and so it was nice to actually get some backstory up, yeah, other than I was married to Sheridan for a tiny bit and, and I might have been on the other side during the war and everything like that, but we actually know very little about her, um, apart from that she hates uh, um, Rebo and Zudi. <laughs> and so it was nice. It was actually, you know, kind of tragic, actually, because here's Zoe, who's, you know, she's much younger because she's like, you know, in her early 20s or however old she was when she died. And so you've got now... 30 something Lockley there with someone from her like college days essentially and it's it's there's a it's a kind of sadness to it all where like Zoe is sort of like reminding her of of her past her carefree past and everything and how much she kind of regrets it now and you know we were cold and hungry and starving all the time and she, she feels that she's better off now but she's like always alone and sad and is dead inside because she doesn't like comedy or anything like that too so i i find i found those scenes actually quite poignant i just want to give a, a big thumbs up to tracy scoggins too for her performance like absolutely I catching my throat a little bit like oh yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, Tracy Scoggins was amazing uh, in her sequences uh, working with uh, the actress that played Zoe. The only thing that, and I think this was just, you know, the compression of time. Like if, if they had chosen to do three visitations instead of four, and there was like a little more room for each of, of the visitations and a little more room for interaction, I might have felt a little bit better about this. But I was left with a couple of questions with the hints that, uh, Lockley was so against her dad or so against her family that, you know, she runs away from home. She lives with uh, this other girl as runaways, you know, burnout hotel, uh, scraping to survive um, and apparently, you know, into drug use and things like that. And, you know, the only thing that convinces her to call her father for help is Zoe dying, killing herself uh, with an overdose. And then to turn around and, you know, immediately it sounds like follow her dad into the army or follow her dad into Earth Force if her dad was a Marine and had Marine pals. I feel like there was a transition there that wasn't fully explained. I, I can believe it happened. I just mm-hmm. feel like it would have been nice to have a little bit more detail as to her thought processes or her movements for it. Uh, like I said, I feel like that was something that it was, you know, just slightly something that had to be telegraphed a little um, in the for, in the name of time. I don't know. I feel, I felt pretty good about it. That's felt to me like something that I didn't need spelled out to me. I I could imagine that she needed some time to dry out and to get her head straight. I don't. I 
you know, that that stuff in between, I don't think I needed to see. I feel like it's a classic scared straight story, which, of course, is not a mm-hmm. thing that always works in real life. But in, mm-hmm. in this case, it was just she she was so shaken to the core by this death of her friend and realized where she had been that she was just like, what's my other option? Oh, this is my other option. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, I guess the fact it it sounded to me like she wound up essentially following her dad's footsteps after like who knows how long of not disagreeing with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I can believe that she has you know she got scared straight and uh, she needed to pull herself together. Uh, just the the choice to go into the military was the thing that I would have liked a sentence or something. You know, it didn't have to be long, but just sort of something to give me a little bit of guidance. In JMS's foreword to the script book, he says that Lockley's password, Zoe's dead, Mm -hmm. tells us more about Lockley's character than anything in the previous episodes, which is actually a hell of an admission coming from the guy who wrote all of the previous episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that moment was was pretty intense. That not not only did she change the course of her life, but it's the reason for that change of course is still core to to her personality, mm-hmm. and she obviously thinks about it every single day that she needs to use that password. So that's yeah, I, I agree. I think this was my favorite of all of them um, mm-hmm. for the same reasons. I like getting to see more about this character who is interesting, but we haven't had a lot of time with. So I feel like this is a a very intense dose of character development uh, in a short, short period. Um, But uh, moving on to our last one, I saved the weirdest for last. We get Lanier (laughs) and Mr. Morden. Stephen, I am curious about your thoughts on this one. Well, first off, kudos to, I mean, this is a show that has often spoiled returning appearances in its opening credits. Um, mm-hmm. And the only one who is mentioned in the opening credits is the actress who played Zoe, and everyone else is is saved until the end, which is great, because I had no idea that Morden was going to show up. They figured, um, out, they figured out special appearance credits. <laughs> yes. Yes, right. exactly. As opposed to, like, special appearance, Ed Waster is Morden, like, at the beginning. And they go, oh, mm-hmm. Morden's going to turn up in this episode. But then he turns up, and I thought... That's interesting. And then I saw this is kind of like, you know, Lando Calrissian having the same experience or something years later and Darth Vader turns up. And I'm thinking, well, I, I guess we did have a run in once, um, but I don't know why you're here right now. Shouldn't you be bothering other people who are perhaps are more directly related to you? So I, I found that odd because do they share many scenes together, Mr. Borden? Like I would have if, if it was what's his name? Veer. And Mr. Mm-hmm. Morton, that would have mm-hmm. been interesting. But Ooh. I find like I had I had to think back. When did Lanier meet up with Morton? And, and the answer very and often? the answer is not at all. Not at yeah. all. <laughs> so, right. but he knew what he was. That was very strange. No, I mean, yeah, I think you know Lanier was aware of Morton and you know knew who he was by the end of the Shadow War. But yeah, it's really interesting because it occurred to me this time around as Lanier is like setting things up and he puts his you know fighting pike down and he's getting ready to meditate or whatever. I think Lanier was deliberately hoping to find Marcus. He was hoping like Marcus ah. was going to come visit him. I was actually and kind in- of expecting that. At the, yeah, as it was exactly. Going on. And yeah. instead, he gets Morden. Creepy space mob. Um, uh, <laughs> first off, I was I was pleased to see Lanier back because you know as as happens all the time, we watch <laughs> the opening credits and I go, okay, he's not on the show anymore. Probably he's gone. <laughs> She's not appearing. I, I've already cast. Uh, uh, Lita into the abyss once again. Now that this telepath <laughs> arc was over, I thought, well, we won't see her again, as is uh, 
as is tradition. So I, I was happy to see Lanier in the first place and, and call and say to, to uh, uh, Delenn, and how was your husband? They could, oh, no, he the, said partner, remember? Partner, not even yeah. that. Yeah, it was yeah. like the, the, the jealousy that was there, which is like, oh, God, get over it. Um, but it was it was intriguing to see Mr. Morton again. That was that was a, that was a surprise. That was a genuine surprise. I was not at all expecting that. <laughs> Chip and Shannon, how did how did you feel about Morton being paired with Lanier here? And were you surprised? I was almost certainly surprised at the time, and I like this. Um, I like this. It sort of throws a kink into the pattern. To so, mm-hmm. so to speak, because we have with Lockley and Londo and Garibaldi, they all get, you know, somewhat of closure, you know, maybe not full closure, but, you know, the, the chance to interact and speak again with somebody that mattered to them to some degree. And, you know, here's Lanier hoping to see, you know, Marcus, or maybe he had somebody else in mind that he wanted to see. And instead, Lanier is the one person who does not get comfort he does not get the delight of interaction with somebody that he cares about. He instead gets an antagonist who promptly calls him on the fact that he's still in love with Delenn and he's not letting it go. Um, flat out tells him, hey, guess what? You're going to betray the Anne Lashock. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Lanier, like, what? <laughs> yeah, Lanier is like, you know, no, no, I'm not. And the off keyness of knowledge, the idea that uh, Morden had no idea that Sheridan came back from Zaha Doom. Uh, you know, that, that is Lanier's reason for casting doubt at what um, what else Morden is saying to him. I liked the break in the pattern. I really enjoyed the fact that um, this had a different tone, this meeting, compared to the others. It still doesn't feel super organic to me. Uh, I think Veer facing Morden would have just sparkled. It would have been yeah. an entirely different kind of conversation and story or whatever, but the character beats... Um, Everybody else, the characters have an emotional connection to. Lanier and Morden do not have an emotional connection at all. Lanier is in his own way at this point. He is obsessed with Delin and ruminating and all this other stuff that is just not very helpful for him. So it's it sort of makes sense from a story standpoint that one of the consequences is you get something that's not going to be comfort it's not going to be emotionally connecting which is that i have to say that's that's why i while it would have been fun to see morden and veer kind of go at it veer at this point has i mean we haven't even seen him for a while but he hasn't done anything he's not getting in his own way um his he's just mm-hmm. sort of like going along so there's not really any good reason to bring morden yeah. back not that there's necessarily a great reason for lanier either but at least you've got that he's not in a great place and everybody else is just mm-hmm. rolling along right but the side effect of that uh, and it's slightly unfortunate is that ed wasser isn't given a lot to do except be either cryptic or smoothly ed wasser i mean <laughs> look around you, you what you got you got no coffee in here that's amusing but the things that Ed Wasser brought to the Morden role over all those years are things that he doesn't really get to employ this time, and that's a little disappointing. Dodger is recognizably Dodger. Adira is recognizably Adira. Morden is kind of Lanier's foil, but he's he's not quite himself. 
I, I don't know. I, when he's talking about, you know, the, how, how he died and, you know, how his head's still rotting on a pike, things like that. Stuff like that felt to me very Morden-ish. But maybe that's just me. Felt more yeah, new I, to me. Space mob. He was totally space <laughs> mob. Yeah, I, I felt like he felt like Morden. It's just that he was put in this situation that was so anti- like so antithetical to the situations that he'd been in before. Because every other situation had been somewhere that he had inserted himself and insinuated himself. So he kind of most of the time had the upper hand. And this seems like something where they were just sort of like thrown together like the odd couple. And uh, and so I feel like it's the situation that was less Mordeny as opposed to the Morden himself. Yeah, with a person he'd never met before. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for for we, that we see Lanier not with sort of an emotional um mm-hmm. uh foil because you know the last time we saw him he was this you know dear lovable um Lanier as he goes off to ranger training and now we see him and he's kind of like you know Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Return of the Jedi he's this uh, meditating ranger wearing all black and he's got that little laser quarter staff thing that he has and uh and so I think it's important that we sort of see a, a more hardened linear now that he's sort of like you know trying to leave the emotional past that is babylon 5 behind funny you said you started to say that and i immediately started comparing linear to luke and the last jedi grumpy and bitter (laughs) that could be it maybe in 20 years time when we see old bitter linear (laughs) complaining about that and lost space reruns Uh, and uh, the the one last kind of important thing to touch on from this uh, this giant part of the plot is the the message from Kosh that that Zoe brings back and gives to Lockley to deliver to Sheridan. Was it so Zoe? Steven, that's that's what I was confused. Was it Zoe that gave Lockley the message? Uh, yes, uh, there mm-hmm. they cut from the shooting for the from the final version shot. There was a. There was a line where Zoe delivers sort of the last half of the message to Lockley and says that she doesn't know what it means, but there's the message. I don't remember that. It was in the script, but it wasn't filmed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I mean, even even as it was filmed, like I thought it was pretty clear that uh, that that they they were purposely not putting the message giving on screen because they didn't want us to hear what the message was until it was relayed to Sheridan to get his reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it was you know Zoe tells uh, tells Lockley the message and mm-hmm. oh I totally I totally missed that I totally yeah, don't I, remember seeing that yeah now. I think it's oh, sort okay. of like a two beat thing you know Zoe wants to know do you know that somebody named Kosh and Lockley does know enough certainly to recognize that name and then uh, towards the end Lockley passes the marriage message to Sheridan and mm-hmm. we get you know cryptic Kosh speak for something. Oh, yeah, because it's Zoe that mes- yeah. mentions Sheridan first. She says, you know, right. and it's a message for this Sheridan guy. And then later you have Lockley saying, yeah, well, I got married to to that Sheridan guy. So. Oh, I forgot about that. Hmm. Okay, so why does Zoe know of the message from Kosh then? <laughs> Very because, good question. Because okay. apparently, yeah, apparently Kosh can't come play himself. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he's got no, well, he's got a text. I texted Zoe. Tell <laughs> Sheridan. <laughs> The end is the uh, beginning. Something, something. He won't understand it, but it'll make sense later on. Bloom send. Uh, well, Sheridan was not. Sheridan was not in that part of the station. So if he was, I mean, maybe it would have been Kosh that came mm, back. That's true. But uh, good point. Yeah. Apparently, all dead people can talk to each other, or dead Forlans can talk to dead people. I don't. I don't know what the rules are. Either. No, that mm-hmm. was weird. That was the one part that I didn't like, and 
I, Big I surprise. Because uh, <laughs> I mean, it just seemed like out of left field. Oh, you know, we all had these mystical visions. Oh, by the way, you'll have one now, too. I'm going to drop this on you. Okay, bye. It just felt like, oh, well... Uh. I would. I. It. 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 It was. That was disappointing, actually, because he shouldn't have. They shouldn't be able to pass messages around from other dead people. I think people who are within that area are the only ones who get to have those experiences. And the fact that it was Kosh, who's going to be all mystical and mysterious, but not mysterious enough that he has to. That he can show up on his own. I would. Have, I would have been great if they actually brought Kosh back to send him that, as opposed to passing it along third hand from from Lockley's college roommate. Um, that it just seemed to diminish his own importance in life, you know, that pass, pass the message along third hand to Sheridan. Uh, that was disappointing. On the other hand, it is like the Vorlon's M.O. <laughs> so. Well, they they, yeah. you, they usually like coming along and, and like, you know, being mysterious and then turning slowly away so they could see the yeah, last but- thing they see is the mystified look on the people they just told <laughs> so they could go ah, and laugh. Yeah, but, but there's also a whole lot of them pulling strings behind the scenes. So I suppose so. That too. The last person that sort of figured into this story was Jakar, who did not have a mystical experience and was very suspicious about it to start with. How did you guys feel about Jakar's um, sort of he has a bit of a, a character arc in this story, even though he's not in it very much? It's cute. He's sort of being a little obstinate and dramatic in uh, bunking down in C&C rather than just finding a hotel room somewhere. Yeah, uh, right. That's what I was that, thinking. There are no hotels on Babylon 5? Yeah. No, I'll sleep on the floor in the corner of this round room. However, my headcanon for that is that Jakar, like he obviously had an idea that something big was going to happen. And uh, it makes sense that he would maybe want to be in C&C if something like momentous mm-hmm. went down and wow. not in a, a hotel room somewhere. Good point. Um, it, it the scene between him and Lockley and the Bukiri ambassador when she reminds him of the uh, Declaration of Principles. I wrote right. those. You know, it's, right. th- that that's nice. That's nice interplay. Um, I like it whenever. Sometimes I get the feeling that because Lockley is a new drop-in character, that the other characters with the major exception of Sheridan, don't get to actually play with each other as if they know each other, um, as if the actors haven't figured out a way to riff off of each other. And Andreas Katsoulis and Tracy Scoggins do riff off of each other very well, and I appreciated that because it seems so rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of, of that and that sequence, Stephen, you had some strong feelings about Lockley as a manager yeah, so she sells, quote-unquote, like a portion of the station to the Burkiri, but doesn't tell C&C about it or anyone else. And everyone's like, well, I did, like, um, Corwin is not aware of the transaction, you know, metaphorical, though it may be in her eyes. She doesn't bother to tell anyone. So everyone's, like, shocked and surprised when this happens. Yeah, or, or not enough details. Like, you know, I think they knew it was... Th- I think they knew it was happening, but, you know, as you said, they don't know how long it's going to happen, and they yeah. don't have... Yeah. Memos. Memos, people. Pat, yeah. the, there should be a chain of communication, Lockley. 
disappointed. <laughs> and, and while we're talking about, um, I don't want to say necessarily failures of leadership, but ridiculous leadership, uh, you also had some feelings about Sheridan's line when he comes back and says, I've done all I can down there. Yeah, he threw a fire extinguisher at a thing and then ran away. That was what he did. That was his only solution <laughs> to the whole thing. Well, I could chuck this miniature fire extinguisher, which I'm sure could put out, oh, I don't know, maybe a tenth of the fire that killed... Uh, What's his name a couple weeks ago? Um, this is why there's fires on this station, by the way, because they have little cans of hairspray around. Fire extinguisher, you know? Are you saying that Sheridan has been promoted past his point of usefulness? Yeah, honestly, Sheridan is is very... I feel like the Sheridan arc is is was closed at the end of season four. I think I think he's the biggest casualty of season five because I think basically they JMS... This is me speculating. There could be things in spoiler space and after the series is done when I read up on everything but it just seems to me like his character arc was deemed sort of the most important and the thing we sort of had to close and so he and Delenn have kind of been sidelined I think in in this season and and that him chucking a fire extinguisher at a force field and then walking away is kind of emblematic of of his contributions to season five so far well here is my here here is my take on it Uh, and Uh, I'm just I'm trying to make a silk purse of a sow's ear or however you want to put it. But season one of the show was world building. Mm-hmm. And it's the dawn of the third age of mankind now. We've had the end of the Shadow War and we've had the creation of this new interstellar alliance. And I think in a way, season five is an episode to do some new world building of exploring what a universe where everybody really was trying to get along and work together and build a single government and all this other stuff, how that might actually turn out. It's the last season of the show, so that may not actually have been the greatest dramatic choice, but I think that that's what they're doing. I think this episode is sort of a slice-of-life episode, and we've had a couple of those kinds of things, like uh, the one with Mac and Bo at the beginning of this season, things like that, where we're trying to get acquainted with what it's like to live in the Babylon 5 universe again when there is not this dramatic story arc that carried us through seasons 2, 3, and 4. So, yeah, it feels like we're back in a Star Trek season, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I said at the beginning of this that I have questions, and I and I do, and because it, it, it all it all goes into like um, why this episode was made, not like why the hell was this episode made. I just you know mm-hmm. this this is JMS's baby, and yet for one episode in the midst of basically four seasons worth of Babylon Five, he decides to hand the reins off to someone else, and this episode was like aired so out of order. Um, where of its original intention, and I'm just wondering why JMS thought, yeah, why not? Let's let's throw an episode to someone who's never written for the show before, and and why was it delayed, or was it delayed, or was it aired earlier than we we're watching? And I've I've lost track of of the actual things, but it was aired why, earlier. It was aired earlier. So 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 Chip, low the 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 seer of of wisdom in this. Um, can can you inform me without spoiling me as to why? why these things occurred. So this is not information, just belief. But I think that it's his last season. He gets to be a little self-indulgent here, and he's always been a Neil Gaiman fan. And Neil Gaiman has, as I said way back then, enormous geek cred. 
So I think he saw it as a plus for the show. Not at all unlike bringing Gaiman in to write The Doctor's Wife for Doctor Who. I think it's the exact same sort of principle in action. A well-known, respected writer, almost sort of, especially in Babylon 5's case, because it was always the little show that could, but it was always an underdog. It sort of legitimates Babylon 5 in the eyes of the science fiction nerd public that was aware of Babylon 5 when nobody else in popular culture was. I think Gaiman is there because JMS is a fan and Gaiman makes B5 look better just by his presence. Do you have any information about the timing and like why it's so much later in the preferred viewing order than it was in the actual aired order? I have a line from the Lurker's Guide from JMS Speaks. Let's see. That's a spoiler, so I won't say that. That's a spoiler, so I won't say that. <laughs> this is why I trust you, Chip. <laughs> they moved up Day of the Dead because there was going to be a scheduling point with National Basketball Association playoffs that would affect the pacing of upcoming episodes. Ah. Mm. So where did okay. so it's been so long. So where did this initially air? Because this is in the midst of it aired like in the midst of the telepath war, didn't it? It did. Mm-hmm. It aired after Secrets of the Soup. <laughs> and what one was that again? The one where Lita revealed to the telepaths the Vorlon origins and such. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that and was Franklin finding out about the the race that had committed genocide on their own planet. Right. Oh, right. So this yeah. got dropped in just sort of in the middle of it. They aired this early so that the NBA playoffs would not spoil the run-up to the end of the telepath arc. Right. Oh, okay. Because if you had to put something on, like, hiatus for two or three weeks, you didn't want to, like, put in the midst of that telepath war and then pick it up later on. Mm-hmm. I got right. you. Right. And conveniently, Garibaldi's alcoholism doesn't factor into this episode. Yeah, yeah he's he's tired. He's like he's wiped out, but yeah, he's not showing any signs of the drinking problem. And and Lita and 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 the doctor are are off <laughs> doing other things at this point and are never seen in the episodes, thankfully, because mm-hmm. they're very busy. Right. right. So this yeah. is the originally intended airing order. They just moved mm-hmm. this one up and it was relatively painless, but if we were watching it in the original airing order, it would feel really weird because this would have been dropped in just sort of randomly. Yeah. Like a kickboxing episode or something like that, <laughs> which is what I was expecting this whole time. Each as as we each each week as this 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 episode kept getting pushed back, I think we're not we're still sticking with the lurkers guide. I was expecting this is kickboxing part two, isn't it? <laughs> Jeez, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was nope. a much better episode than that. Well, anything else that you want to touch on before we send Stephen off? I will say I loved. And this is something that Neil Gaiman is a master at. He, he's done it all throughout his career, in his novels, in his comics, of pulling things in from all kinds of cultures and researching it thoroughly and playing with it and producing something that is interesting and engrossing and, you know, still respectful of the culture, in my opinion. And he does it with Day of the Dead. I'm a Spanish teacher. I love teaching about Day of the Dead every fall to my students and explaining how it's not Halloween and, you know, the ideas behind it. And Gaiman picks up the concept of 
believing that, you know, the dead come back to visit and check on the living every year. And he plays with that. And he includes some of the trappings. The sugar skull thing is a thing from Mexico that that they do. Those candies, the breads, all kinds of foods are created in the shape of skulls and bones uh, as part of the trappings. And I absolutely loved how he worked it in. It is something that makes me so happy as part of this episode. All right, Stephen, any last questions? Not really questions. Um, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed Doug Leffler was the director, I think, who I think has directed in the past, but certainly hasn't directed in a while. And I thought not only his reveal of... Actually, this is the only Babylon 5 episode he has directed. Well, I'm... He's directed a lot of other TV, but... Okay. Maybe that's why I recognize the name, or perhaps I'm just telling myself that I recognize the name. I actually quite liked his direction in this. I like not only the reveal of of the, the picture... Uh, that Londo was talking to, but the where we see his reaction to who's walking through the doorway, and then the camera sort of swings around, and we see it's uh, Adiro. I thought that was a very good shot as well. I think mm-hmm. I think um, I actually like Dodger a lot better in this episode than her previous appearance because I mm-hmm. think she was perhaps given a little better direction. The actress in that as well, mm-hmm. she was good in the in her first appearance, but I thought she was a little acty mm-hmm. in that she felt very natural which felt very natural uh, um, across from um, Garibaldi as well so yeah I like the direction in this episode but um, I don't think we've had a Vehar episode yet in season 5 um, and so perhaps that's why I'm having a slightly more muted reaction to the, <laughs> the season so far but I do know don't tell me when I do know that he does turn up at some point again in season 5 or however many episodes I'm not too sure but um but uh, no, I was I was pleasantly surprised by this this episode. All right. Well then, it's time for you to tell people where they can find you on the internet, Stephen. You can find me at on the Twitters at Legopolis, and I am also part of many different podcasts. Not that many actually, but I do edit them uh, as with with you, Erica, uh, yes. as part of Castria. We are we are Castria on the, on the Twitters as well. Thanks for that plug, dear. Yeah, nice work. You, you betcha. Worked it in. Worked it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen and others, your homework this time will get us back on track with DVD order. And that is The Core is Mother, The Core is Father. Bester. Bester's coming back. I'm calling her right now. That's Bester. I recognize that one. <laughs> oh, this is so fun to watch this with you. You're delightful. But I'm not telling you if you're right or wrong. You'll just have to wait a couple weeks and see. If he isn't so. back, I'm very annoyed at JMS for his episode titles even more. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Totally fair. There are absolutely no telepaths in that episode. <laughs> Chip. Uh, I may be lying. But you won't find out until next week. And in the meantime, please join us at b5audioguide.com, chat in our spoiler-friendly and spoiler-free threads, or say hello on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. Now, if this is your first time through Babylon 5 and you don't want to be spoiled, I will ask you to follow Stephen over that line right there, because you see Shannon, Chip, and I are staying in the Brickiri section of this podcast, and the sun is just about to set. Sinclair is valid. <laughs> is that a slow ca- clap in um sarcasm or it is not it is Aww. not that is the most magnificent segue you've done yet oh that was great because i I forgot to mention uh, the the the, the Burkiri jumping between you know Burkiri space and babylon 5 i mean who has not 
played that game when they had the opportunity. Like if they were at Four Corners or some other, you know, monument or divider. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, now I'm in this place and now I'm in that place. I I did that once in a bar a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fun game. It is. It is. It's good. Yeah. So really, this this story just just set me up, set me up for that. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was great to have Steven back. It, it's always nice to hear what he's thinking. Uh, since we're in spoiler space, I did note that when he was talking about uh, talking about his thoughts on the season thus far, just him wondering whether the telepath war is over. It's like, right. Oh, <laughs> no, dear. <laughs> well, no and yes, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, yep. We he's, don't see it, but yeah. <laughs> he's both right and wrong. Because mm-hmm. that will all happen off screen, uh, but we do have more Lita. So if he's he's wrong to cast her into the abyss, as he so eloquently put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, and we're going to get a lot more Lanier now. Um, I had not remembered that Lanier was going to show up in the first episode, and then just nowhere until yeah. now. Mm-hmm. So that's interestingly timed. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and of course he gets the message that he will betray the endless shock. Which is and why it's will. Morden. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you and, know, was, we had to tap dance around that a little bit in pre-spoiler space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I still don't think it's narratively satisfying when you're watching it in real time for Morden to say, for Morden to show up to be Lanier's evil Jiminy Cricket and uh, <laughs> to... And oh, to, that would be the title of this episode if we did silly titles. Yes, it would. Uh, <laughs> but it's supposed to basically signal that, yes, Lanier is going to take a dark turn and Lanier is going to do an awful thing by virtue of the fact that it is more Morden sitting there. But there's just enough misdirection uh, with his not knowing that Sheridan, that Sheridan did die at Sahadum, only mm-hmm. he didn't, you mm-hmm. know, that, but that bit of uncertainty is supposed to make us believe that maybe he's lying and that maybe uh Lanier isn't going to betray it but in the end it's pretty much set up to be inevitable and you know that's how well we how well we decide that Lanier's betrayal is executed when we're watching it again uh this time with our analytical heads heads uh wired up i you know it, I don't know. I still I, I still don't feel super great about the use of Morden other than as a flag for stuff's going to happen to Lanier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just one great big foreshadow. Yeah. <laughs> foreshadow? I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just, you know, in this whole episode, you know, you, you have Lanier coming in and asking about your partner. It's like, if that isn't the most passive-aggressive move ever... Um, mm-hmm. That, yeah, and um, I will. I would like to point out for our um, international listeners, and and also in, in Canada as well, um, and, and a lot of other places, the word partner is commonly used to refer to somebody that you are mm-hmm. possibly even married to. I know people who use that term for married, es- especially, especially at now. this time. Right. Uh, especially yeah. at that time that- in the United States, partner was not used to refer right. to a romantic uh, in- involvement. So, so yeah. it was harsh. It was indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, and we got a message from Kosh. Uh-huh. Which, you know, is amusing because I think I don't remember a line like that being used in Sleeping in Light. But mm. Sheridan does decide that 
where he's going to die is going to be at the site of the end of the shadow war. Um, so that's what this is all about. And, uh, Gaiman in his original first draft of the script, uh, put in basically a bracket space and said, JMS, tell me what message Sheridan Mm -hmm. should receive. And JMS says, okay, uh, when the, at the, at the time of the end, return to the beginning or whatever it is. Um, it's even so cryptic. It's annoying to me. Um, but (laughs) Gaiman knew what it meant and what it referred to, even if none of the rest of us watching did. (laughs) <laughs> anything else uh that, that you guys saw that sort of looks forward to this final half of a season that we have left to go well not like within this season but you know within the arc of the uh entire show of course you know londo's uh harping about you know at this point anybody could be emperor veer could be emperor and it's like well yeah veer's gonna be emperor when you're done uh that's a thing that's gonna happen which we already uh, knew but yep. yeah but you know mentions it again uh bringing that forward it's very kind of Gaiman to remind us that Lise ex- still that Lise exists. Yes, so right. that uh, when she does finally show up to help Garibaldi dry out, she just doesn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Although it's still going to feel kind of like it because she has been such a non-entity in the season. Yeah, she really has. There have been moments where I have wished that Garibaldi has mentioned her or the person he's talk- talking to has, has mentioned her just to seed her a little bit more. Because I can understand, you know, being at work and not mentioning your spouse because I don't talk about Stephen all that much when I'm at work. But but there are, uh, there were enough times where he was in more of a social setting or where it seemed like it could they could have tossed in a little bit of a line and they just didn't probably just didn't have time for it. But still, mm-hmm. I can wish. Yeah. Um the only other thing I can think of is um, the uh, Lurker's Guide kindly spells out all of the um, headlines in the various newspapers that people huh. are reading through this episode. And most of it, of course, is about Rebo and Zudi and their visit. Mm-hmm. But there is also one about Interstellar Alliance talks to resume. So that is like a small signal that, you know, that things may be, you know, getting back on track slightly uh, with uh, Sheridan and Delenn trying to deal with uh, all the ambassadors to the different races. All right. Well, as always, thank you for listening and thank you two for, for being on and allowing me to bring along my partner for the uh, <laughs> for the recording. Um, we will, of course, be back in a couple of weeks when Shannon takes the helm for mm-hmm. Stevens Wright, more bester goodness, also telepaths, Chip, uh, with... The core is mother, the core is father. So until then, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip, who can't wait to see Steven's reaction to the credits for the next episode. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>